Please open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. I mentioned to those who were present in the previous hour, we looked at Genesis chapter 19, which you all remember to be the uh, judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. And now this morning in the worship service, we're looking at John chapter 2 and Jesus' cleansing of the temple. And so there's a certain feel to the services this morning that uh, judgment is uh, at hand. And that was not planned. It's just the way the Lord orchestrated the timing of getting to and arriving at both of these uh, passages. So um, please uh, understand that. I'm uh, I'm not in a hurry to call down fire and brimstone on you this morning. Despite appearances to the contrary. John chapter 2 verses 13 through 22. Nevertheless, this is a very serious matter and a serious subject. We read this. The Passover of the Jews was near. Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when, his, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Father, help us now as we look into your word. We pray that you would be honored and glorified in it, and that our hearts would be changed as our minds are changed. And Father, that our love and our actions would follow both a change of heart and mind. And may our sincere desire in life be to offer to you worship that is pleasing in your sight and not worship of our own making. And we pray, Father, that you would again be enthroned on our praise, both in what we say and in what we do. We pray this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, worthy of our worship. In His name we pray. Amen. You know, as you read through the Scriptures, certainly passages like Genesis 19 and what transpires with Lot grip our imaginations. And few things, I would argue... Few things in, in all of the pages of Scripture spark the imagination and grip our souls with fear quite like the events in which fallen mankind attempts to worship God in such a way that would steal His glory and God's response is to absolutely and utterly destroy those attempts, if not those people. Those are gripping accounts. In fact, if you've read the Bible at any length at all, or 
you grew up and your parents told you Bible stories or perhaps you had a children's Bible, some of these events are going to be the ones that are kind of mountaintop peaks in your life. If not the images on the pages, perhaps, of a children's Bible, think about the chaotic scene around the golden calf in Exodus 32. God threatens to destroy an entire nation that He had created and to begin a new nation through His prophet Moses. Why? Why? Why would God, having brought Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Israel through all that He had brought them through, why would He threaten to destroy them and begin anew through Moses? Because of the severity of false worship. You remember that as Joshua and Moses were on the mountain, they come down and Joshua says to Moses, I hear sounds in the camp. It's the sound of war. What is going on? And they arrived at the bottom of the mountain only to find that the war had indeed broken out, but it was not a war of swords and bows and arrows. It was a war against the glory and the majesty of God against a calf that had been created out of the golden jewelry taken from Egypt. And it was enough for God to threaten to destroy an entire nation. How pathetic the attempts to replace God are when we really think about it. How pathetic it is that we think that we can substitute some figment of our imagination for a God who does what only God can do. Think about the children of Israel in Exodus 32. Verse 7 says this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have defiled themselves. How? False worship. Incorrect worship. God says they have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. This golden thing that we made is God. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Here is a people who have watched their God respond overwhelmingly to their cries, who has delivered upon the greatest nation on the face of the earth at that time, and perhaps one of the greatest, most powerful nations in the history of the world, deliver upon them ten plagues that absolutely brought that nation to its knees. Humbled it to the dust so that it would never again be the same. It ended and it culminated with taking the life of the firstborn of every Egyptian family and every Israelite family who would not bow to the commands of Yahweh. That means Pharaoh's own son was consumed. 
the one who would have been next in line. These are the people who have seen literally an ocean open up and they go through on dry land, but Pharaoh's army doesn't. These are the people who will understand what it is to live in a desert and yet be sustained by fresh manna every morning. And yet they have the audacity because Moses is on a mountain for too long in their opinion and God has not done enough in their opinion and so they melt down a bunch of earrings and necklaces and say, this is God. That's some audacity. To shake your fist in God's face and say, not only is it God, but we will worship this instead of you. We will do it our way. And God says, no, you won't. I will not be mocked. I will not be confused. And I will not give my glory to someone else. Think about Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron. Moses' own nephews in Leviticus chapter 10. Here's how that chapter begins. Perhaps you've forgotten. Let me remind you. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who is the high priest, took their respective fire pans that God had commissioned for the true worship of Himself, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. How seriously does God take worship? Only this seriously. That the high priest's sons are consumed because of what the world today might say. Well, that's just a minor variation of what God said. He did say to offer fire. After all, He did give him the fire pans. You know, they just they drifted a little, but not so severe. God says, no, I told you what to do. And I will not have what I say compared to what you say. And so the very sons, the very young men who would have eventually become the high priests in all of Israel are consumed. Notice the response after they die. What do you say after that? What do you say if you're Moses? You've been up on the mountain with God and God has already said because of the golden calf, I'm going to destroy a whole nation. Moses has his attention captured. He understands the holiness and the righteousness of the God with whom he is dealing. And now his nephews go and they pull this little uh, stunt, if you will, before the Lord and the Lord says, not accepted. Not only is it not accepted, I'm going to consume you for trying it. And now Moses has to go to his brother. It's always hard at funerals, isn't it, to know exactly what to say? Funerals are hard. They hurt. And it's hard to know exactly how to be of comfort to someone in their moment of grief. And so here is Moses, and he's confronted with having to go to his brother. And notice what he says in Leviticus 10.3. Then Moses says to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke. Those who come near me 
I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. I bet none of you have ever walked into a funeral home and uttered those words to someone. And yet Moses has to, as the prophet of the Lord, has to deliver this message to his brother so that even his brother, the high priest, gets the message and doesn't repeat the mistake of his sons. And notice Aaron's response, what his brother says. So Aaron kept silent. What do you say? I will be honored as holy. I will be treated that way. I will not be mocked. I will be honored in the sight of all the people. Moses' words to Aaron, his brothers, upon the sudden death of his nephews and Aaron's son, ring true. They are justified words, even though they may sound like cold words. They are true words. God will be. And brothers and sisters, just because you haven't seen anyone be consumed in fire today does not mean that God does not regard his worship just as seriously. That didn't change with the coming of Jesus. Jesus, as God, goes into his father's house, the temple, and declares that even then he would not be robbed or distorted in his worship either. For anyone who thinks what Jesus does in restoring worship to its proper place here in John chapter 2 is over the top. Remember this, it could have been worse. It could have been Nadab and Abihu all over again. Cords were pretty light compared to fire. Cords are pretty light compared to water that is tainted with the dust of gold that would make you ill and a whole nation was forced to drink it. Just simply chasing you out with a whip is pretty mild when we stop to really think about it. Cords are better than being consumed. And Jesus, here in John chapter 2, points us to that worship which is correct by demonstrating that which is not correct. Jesus Remember, in this portion of John's Gospel is all about ushering in new things. We have new wine at the beginning of chapter 2 as we saw last week. We have new worship this morning. We have a new birth coming up. We have new water and new life in John chapter 4. Jesus will not allow His glory and His true identity, however new this all is, He still will not allow it to be diminished. And can I say pastorally and kindly to you that one of the problems that we have in the modern church today is a problem of discontinuity. We, we look at the Old Testament and we look at the New Testament and we think somehow the God of both of those Testaments, A, either has to be a different God or B, that he's changed somewhere between Malachi and Matthew. And that's not true. We live in a day and an age that is drawn, in my opinion, far too distinct and far too hard of lines between the Old and the New Testaments so that the Old is viewed as 
irrelevant and that nothing in the old could possibly be true of the new. And that's absolutely not the case. Certainly, worship has changed in the sense of that Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial law, that we are not Israel bound by the national laws that were given strictly to Israel in the Old Testament. But it does not mean that God takes his worship any less seriously. It does not mean that God is not to be honored or reverenced as He was in the Old Testament. No, He is still to be treated in the same manner, in the same way today. Jesus' presence there even in the temple in His day is demonstration of that new worship that still maintains the dignity and the love and the reverence for the glory of God that the old did. So here, Jesus and dealing with new worship. The beginning of Jesus' earthly ministries is the beginning of, remember what He says. Look back at verse 11. John 2, verse 11. This is the beginning of His signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee in order to do what? To manifest His glory. What is Jesus about? Jesus is about one thing demonstrating His own glory. You do realize that even the seeking and the saving of sinners, which He said He came to do, that is a means to the end of demonstrating His glory. It's not the end. It's merely one way in which He does it. And so all of what Jesus is doing and ushering in this newness is to distinctly manifest His glory. And, and we saw last week how intense that was, right? Even the most tender and the most dear of earthly and human relationships, that between a mother and her child could not detract from what he had come to do. He says to his mother, Mother, they're out of wine. What does that have to do with the reason I'm here? Don't try to sidetrack me. That's kind of rude of Jesus to say to dear old mom. But Jesus says, that's not the ultimate purpose for which I've come. I have come to glorify myself and to usher in a new day of true worship. And isn't that the heart of his discussion in John chapter 4 with a woman at Samaria? The hour is coming and now is when those who worship him will be true worshipers and worship him in spirit and in truth. Undistracted by lesser things. And oh, the foretaste of the glory of worship in heaven to come that we get through these glorious texts. Everything about the new realities that Jesus ushers in are merely platforms where His glory is declared. And if you're here this morning and you may be thinking, well, that just seems awfully contradictory to what I think Christianity should be. Isn't it about me? No. It's about Him. And perhaps that's where we've gone wrong in our days in thinking that somehow, pragmatically, worship is about us. It's about what we like. It's about what pleases me. It's about uh, meeting everything I think it should meet. Rather than extolling and lifting up the Lord Jesus Christ and His Father and the Spirit and true Trinitarian worship. And so in order to help us stay focused on what is glorifying to God and to get our eyes 
off of ourself, Jesus offers us three corrections this morning that help us define the concept of true worship. So that our worship will not be rejected by Him, but will be in accord with His centrality and His purposes. Number one, there is a correction to distraction. There is a correction to distraction. I don't know if your vehicle has it or not, but as technology has improved, my wife's car has this new little thing that helps you not to be so distracted when you drive. Personally, I like a little distraction when I drive. I don't like it when my wife's car starts to get a little too close to that line and my seat starts buzzing. And then it pushes me back over into the lane. That's distracting. And as I always say to my wife, who is my help meet and co-driver, don't worry, I was coming back. This makes it worse. I'm going to overcorrect and kill somebody. We need corrections to our distraction though, don't we? John is meticulous about his record. The sequence of events. And he quickly ushers in this correction immediately after this event in Cana of Galilee. Notice verse 12 as we're ushered into it. After the wedding, again, a seven-day or so feast, he goes down to Capernaum for a few days with his mother and his brothers. Those would be his half-brothers and his disciples. And they stay there for a few days and then immediately they go into this season of Passover in Jerusalem. Jesus quickly moves from introduction to setting out the highest of priorities, and that is to usher in true worship. Again, as he will make clear in John chapter 4. And and Jesus wastes nothing. He does it at a time of maximum impact. He goes to Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, that time where of year where Jerusalem was more crowded than at any other time of year. All of the worshipers from the Jewish world were required, at least the males were required to descend upon the capital city to pay the temple tax, to offer sacrifice. Jesus, just as He will do in the second cleansing of the temple, and just as He will orchestrate for His own death, times it so that it occurs along with the Passover in Jerusalem. Again, remember, this is the highest day of worship on Israel's calendar. This is the celebration of salvation from Egypt. This is about an entire nation being set apart for the worship of Yahweh. And so here is the sacrifice of the Passover lamb celebrated that time of year. And into Jerusalem, unbeknownst to the people at this point, walks the Passover lamb of all Passover lambs. You can picture it in your mind, can't you? The the religious fervor that is sweeping this city. They are so excited. The Passover has come. They're reuniting with friends and family members there in Jerusalem. The temple is abuzz with activity. The smells of incense and all of the sounds of temple worship are echoing uh, throughout that part of the old city. 
They have been journeying for days on end, some of them down these narrow mountain pathways through canyons and over mountains with other pilgrims coming to Jerusalem, singing out the Psalms of Ascent as they ascend up to the elevated city of Jerusalem. And so worship is in the air. Worship is in the blood of these people as Jesus enters into the temple. But He's going to show them something. This time He's going to show them just how much worship matters to God. Many of them have been there before, no doubt. They're familiar with the customs. They're familiar with the sights they want to see while they're there. The places they want to visit, the people they want to see. But Jesus in this particular Passover is going to show them that it matters how they worship. Again, God and Jesus being God will not share His glory with another. He won't allow distorted views of worship to continue. He won't even collaborate about it. He doesn't go to the Pharisees. He doesn't go to the Sadducees. He doesn't go to the Sanhedrin and say, hey guys, can we work out a compromise and have some, you know, blended worship this morning in the temple? You know, kind of what the law says and kind of what you want to, and we can kind of come to an agreement of the best of both worlds, maybe something like that. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus comes in and He utterly cleanses that which is dishonoring to him. Jesus will not allow that temple and the worship, the sacred worship of the Godhead to be diminished in any way. I want you to get the picture here. These Jewish pilgrims have come from all over the ancient world to pay their taxes and to offer respectable worship as best they knew how in Jerusalem at this time. And this was no easy thing. They didn't hop in a car and drive to Jerusalem. You walked. And if you were really well off, you had a donkey and you could ride. But the vast majority of people are walking to Jerusalem. And it's not just walking to Jerusalem. These are not cushioned rubber, you know, uh, asphalt Pathways to Jerusalem. These are narrow mountain paths, rocky, treacherous, robbers. That's why they traveled in group, because robbers knew the time of year when there would be more pilgrims on the road. They knew where to lie and wait. This is a difficult, arduous, often dangerous journey in sandals, not Nike sneakers. Are we doing Nike this week or are we off of Nike? Anyway, sneakers. They're not wearing the most comfortable clothes for walking. This is hard. And they've had to uproot from their lives at home and they've had to make this long journey. And the last thing anybody wants to do if you're coming from far away in those kinds of condition is to bring your livestock with you. Right? Imagine having to... It's difficult enough to find food for yourself. But, but what about keeping a lamb alive? What about keeping dove alive? What about keeping an ox alive? How hard would that be? Well, the answer is, it would be nigh well 
Impossible. And so what do you do? You do what you're doing if you're traveling nowadays. The closest comparison I can think of is you get on an airplane and you say, the last thing I want to do is check a bag. And so I'm going to take a carry-on. Because after all, my bag may not make it. And so I'll take a carry-on. Oh, but wait, I can't take all the hair product I want. And I can't take all the, you know, because there's rules. So what do you say? I'll buy it when I get there, right? I'll just go to the store, pick it up, go to the hotel, we're done. They're doing the same thing, essentially. They are coming to Jerusalem on foot, difficult journey, long journey. And they get to Jerusalem and they buy their animals once they get there. Now, the Bible in no way forbids this. God is not a cruel and capricious God. The, the, the law nowhere forbids that they could not purchase animals once they got to Jerusalem. It doesn't say you've got to bring it from home. And so they are doing that out of practical necessity. But in the midst of practical necessity, an ungodly form of pragmatism had worked its way in. D.A. Carson cites that originally and before Jesus' time, there was a time in which booths or little storefronts were set up all along the side of the Mount of Olives adjacent to and across the valley from the temple. And that is where these transactions would have occurred. You know, you... You go across the valley, you buy your animal, you lead it across the valley to the temple, you offer it up as a sacrifice, you pay your tax, and you worship Yahweh. But as time went on, that was just a little inconvenient. I've got a better idea. Why don't we move the booths from outside the temple to inside the temple? User-friendly. Hey, and we can also charge, some commentators believe, a premium for buying it in the temple. Because after all, walking across the valley is just a step too far. And when I say valley, we're not talking Grand Canyon. We're talking a mere indention, a small draw almost, that would have separated those two. And so... By the time Jesus arrives on the scene, the temple worship had become synonymous with temple business. And people are there and they are so busy with the act of exchanging their currency, of purchasing their animals, that their businesses, their business practices have now corrupted the worship of Yahweh. Some commentators say that not only were they selling animals in the temple for a premium price, they were selling inferior animals in the temple for a premium price. The text makes no mention of that here. That's simply historians reflecting upon that. But what is mentioned in Scripture is the fact that it's occurring at all. That the business of men and the thoughts of men have invaded the sacred space that belonged to God alone. And along with the sale of the animals were the money changers. You've got people coming from different regions. 
Remember, in Jesus' day, it would not have even been uncommon for even municipalities to have their own distinct and uh, unique currency. And yet, when he came to the temple, you were required to pay your annual half-shekel temple tax in a Jewish currency that was acceptable. And so these people would come and they would have to exchange, just like you do when you go to a foreign country. You have to find an exchange booth at the airport and exchange your you know, American dollars for you know, a, a euro or a uh, peso or whatever the case might be. So here are these people. They were changing money out and charging some additional fee for their troubles. But it, again, is not the problem of doing that. That had to be done, nor is Scripture forbidding them to make a profit off of that. But the problem is that it has become the focus of worship rather than worship itself. And so as Jesus enters into the temple, He finds it unrecognizable. Notice what He says, You're making My Father's house a place of business this doesn't look like a temple anymore this looks like a marketplace jesus is unmoved by their concerns for ease he's unmoved by their user-friendly interface of being so close in proximity to the altar that your lamb only has to take you know 20 steps before being slaughtered. He's unmoved by that. And instead of the humility that should accompany any worshiper as they enter the presence of God broken and reflective on who He is and what He has done for us, he finds the worldly occupation about exchange rates. Haggling over the price of an animal. Instead of prayer, Jesus hears the bleeding of sheep that are waiting to be sold. Instead of the pristine condition of a temple that reflects the sacredness of that moment, he finds the filth of animals and the stench of animal waste throughout the courtyard of the temple. Instead of the sacred smell of incense, it's the smell of manure. Like the golden calf, the worship of the transcendent and holy God had been reduced to the worldly composition of man's imagination, of man's preoccupation. And Jesus just simply cannot stand for that. But what do you suppose drives Jesus' actions? After all, Jesus acts quickly. Jesus acts decisively. And Jesus acts thoroughly to what is being done against God. But what motivates Jesus? Is it anger and hatred for the people buying the product? Is it even anger or hatred for those selling the product? It doesn't appear to be either of those. What does seem to motivate Jesus is a love for His Father. Let me ask you a question. Why are you here this morning? If we answer we've come to this place and we have concern for safeguarding even this place and the purity of our doctrine and our acts of worship, if we're doing it for any other reason than love for God, I don't think we're doing it for the reason Jesus did it. 
Should it be done? Yes. Should we be careful to guard those things? Yes. But we ought always do it in the same spirit that Jesus does. Jesus is concerned that others would love and revere His Father in the same way He does. As Carson says, Jesus' physical action was forceful, but it was not cruel. He's not out to hurt anyone. He's not out to defame anyone. He simply corrects them away from their distraction so that worship is made primary again, not secondary. What in our lives is occupying the space of true worship? What is occupying the space that should be occupied undistracted of true worship? What's causing you even right now to be unable to focus on a transcendent God? A holy God. A God who sent His Son to die in your place. What what is causing you to be unable to do that? What in the life of the modern church has been brought into the space where we have reserved this for the corporate worship of God that is distracting us? Yeah, but it seemed like a good idea. That's what Nadab and Abihu said. Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. Famous last words, right? Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. But God didn't commission it. God didn't command it. God did not state that that is acceptable and uh, consistent with His character. What has been added for convenience and ease of worshiper without a a thought about God's opinion of it? And and brothers and sisters, I think we, we always need to be thinking. These can be good things. These could even be helpful things. In a pragmatic sort of way. But if anything comes between us and coming for the worship of holy God, it is not right. It could be teaching a Sunday school class. It could be leading the musical portion of worship. It could be reading Scripture. It could be the friendships you have here. It could be the coffee and donuts that Terry puts out every morning. It could literally be anything. But if anything excites you and drives you to the house of the Lord for worship other than a love for God, you're coming and doing it for the wrong reasons. We must purify our own hearts and our own minds like Jesus does the temple. Is He angry? Yes. But is He wanting to destroy them? No. He's wanting to correct them and remove the distraction from them. Now, should we do those things? Yeah, we should should teach. We should fellowship. We should do those things. But they should never become the point or the distraction. True worship of God should be without distraction, without confusion, without contradiction, without competition, and without compromise. We need to pray that God would help us to rid our own thinking, individually and corporately, of anything that would detract from that. Worship is for God and therefore dictated by God. It's like marrying your wife and, uh, you know, thinking that 
it's a great idea to buy her this, that, or the other for your first anniversary. And she looks at you like you've lost your mind. And she says, you know, I didn't want a new weed eater. Yeah, but I, it, I liked it. No. What do you do? You, you buy in order to please what she enjoys. What she likes. What speaks love to her. Same is true of God. Why would it not be? To offer that which is pleasing to Him. We must bear the burden of mining that out of Scripture. And offering it out of a heart of love and faith for Him. Secondly, Jesus offers a correction to their misunderstanding. This Jesus does. He takes the cords which commentators say most likely are some form of reeds that were used to feed the animals there in the temple and He simply binds them together like a sheave of wheat or something and the stalks and that's what He uses to cleanse the temple and run these people out. He upends the tables where they are sitting making their change and puts them on a right path. But he corrects a misunderstanding, not only a distraction, but a misunderstanding. And the misunderstanding is his authority. Look at verse 18. It is zeal or love for the Lord that has consumed him. And in verse 18, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? things how dare you who sent you by whose authority are you overturning our tables jesus enemies those who would become his enemies are certainly not putting the pieces together are they jesus now gives the basis for his authority and a clue to his identity remember he is not yet ready to declare broadly and loudly who he is and yet he gives them a very, clue, a very clear clue that they should have known from Psalm 69, verse 9. Zeal for your house has consumed me. Now that's a psalm looking forward to the coming of Messiah. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Hey, listen, what you're doing to my father and robbing my father of his glory, you're doing it to me. What you do to him, you do to me. That's who I am. I am the one David spoke of in Psalm 69. Don't you know John, as he writes this some years later, and the other disciples as well, says they remember. You remember that day when Jesus... Hey, Peter, I just had a thought. You remember when Jesus said that? That's what he meant. He was telling all of us all the way back then that He was Messiah. And that His authority comes from who He is as God in human flesh. Truly God, truly man. And a a desire for genuine worship consumed Him. Just like it consumes all who love the glory of God. Think about Isaiah. It ultimately fully consumed him, didn't it? He's ushered into the very presence of God and he's unable to speak. And everything in that moment about Isaiah is changed. 
How do we know that? We'll read chapter Isaiah 1 through 5 and then read 6 and following. Two different men. A vision of a holy God will change you. It will consume you to the point that Isaiah takes a commission to go to a nation at great risk to his own life. And God says, you're going to go preach and they're not going to listen. They want nothing to do with you, but go tell them anyway. That's what worship does. It consumes the man. It consumes the woman who worships God. This is what it does even for Jesus who is God. A love for the worship of His Father has absolutely eaten Him from the inside out. No doubt His detractors know that passage. And they know it well because they are religious devotees of Judaism and they would have studied the Psalms. But they still don't get it. As if the verse is not in this. Okay, fine, whatever. You can quote Psalm 69.9. Tell us what authority you have. That they want a sign. Notice what the text says. What sign do you show us? Seems that there's a condemnation for that request, doesn't it? Greeks want what? Wisdom. And Jews want what? Knowledge. A sign. They, they, they want, prove it, Jesus. Do something right here. On demand. Show us something that God, who alone has the right to determine worship, would do. Prove it. Prove it. You know, here's the tragic reality. Here's a little acid test you can put to your own life. What does your worship do to the person of Christ? Perverted worship will always lead to a perverted view of Jesus. Wrong worship will always have as part of its feature a wrong identity of Christ. To the point that now today, Ligonier, in partnership with Lifeway, just a year or two ago, conducted a, their state of the church survey and found that only 30 percent of regular church going evangelicals these are not friends these are people who attend regularly only 30 percent believe that jesus is god you think our worship has gone off the rails there's no question they don't understand the identity of jesus their worship is askew as a result. They are demanding a miracle to prove it rather than accept the fact that Jesus is Messiah by faith. Jesus was just a method to fulfill their desire for religious entertainment. Let's be honest. That's what they wanted. Show me a novelty. Meet our desires. And Jesus corrects them. They can't comprehend the kind of zeal that consumes Jesus. Because the worship that Jesus has in mind so consumed Him that He would eventually give His own life that others may worship His Father as He had. That's what true worship does to the Christian as well. 
The true worship of God will so consume you that you will be willing to give your life itself in in order to see others ushered into a right worship of God. Isn't that what evangelism is? It's a preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ that so radically changes people that heaven gains another worshiper if they will but repent and believe. Jesus is utterly consumed with the act of worship and right worship to the point He will give His own life to make new creatures in Himself that are capable and have the tools at their disposal to offer to God worship that is acceptable. Think about Romans chapter 12. For 11 chapters, the Apostle Paul is laser-focused on teaching the power of the Gospel. I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is never without its operational power. It is always effective, Paul says. So that when Paul gets to chapter 12, verse 1, he says, because of that, I beg you, my brothers, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. It's an all-consuming life. Birthed out of the transforming power of the Gospel. And Jesus says, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. What's the sign He gives them? The Gospel. Tear this temple down, I'll raise it in three days. You know, Jesus, it took us 46 years. And by the way, the temple is not yet complete. By most historical accountings of the timing of this, it's almost done, but it's not yet done. And they're saying to Jesus, no, 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 no. It took us 46 long years to get here. You're not tearing it down. And if you did, you really think you're going to build it back in three days? They're missing the point. Exercises in missing the point. Jesus says, there's something better than stone and mortar. And the disciples later realize it, right? They understand that after the resurrection, Jesus was speaking about His own body. They accused Jesus They say, oh really, you're going to tear it down? What's the reality? No, you're going to tear it down. But I'm going to raise it up. You're going to destroy yourselves. You're going to destroy that which is true worship. In the Spirit. But I'll raise it up in three days. Aren't we thankful that we have the distinct privilege of living when we do in history? Because we can look backwards at this and say, man, it's so clear. Eventually the disciples did too who were with Him. But carnal minds will never be able to conceive spiritual worship. And that is why, brothers and sisters, let me say this as kindly as I can, the church must never stoop to the world's cravings in order to attract them to its worship. It will not happen. 
carnal cravings can never understand true worship. It has to be distinct from that. And Jesus is correcting their misunderstanding. And that misunderstanding is rooted in His authority and His mission as the one who would save. Lastly, Jesus issues a corrective of priority. Like Mary in the previous uh, passage, you remember at Cana, she made a gross miscalculation as to why Jesus was there. He wasn't there, you know, to be a a wine steward and to uh, produce wine. That's not why he was there. And that's why Jesus asked the question, what does that have to do with me? So what? They're out of wine. It's not why I'm here. Could I do it? Sure. But is that why I'm here? No. To these Jews, everything was relegated to the the worldly, external, tangible exercise that once these people met this obligation of yearly Passover worship, they could go home and forget about it until next year. It's kind of like the t-shirts that people often joke about that they're going to hand out at Christmas. You know, Merry Christmas. See you at Easter. That seems to be American Christianity described pretty succinctly. You go, you do your thing, and then you forget about it until it's time to do it again. It's absolutely inconsequential to their lives. Many of these Jewish people are just going through the motions of external religion and it is inconsequential in their thinking about even their own eternal state. But that is not the priority of true worship. And Jesus corrects that. Jesus has come for more than just a Passover celebration. Jesus has come for eternal salvation. This isn't about a yearly thing that you do. You go home and you forget about it until you get the reminder in the mail that, hey, it's only a month away. Don't forget to be there. No, Jesus has come to change everything about them. And that is at the heart of true worship. Salvation that changes not only the immediate their presence in the temple, but their future. Think about Romans 6. We are buried in baptism with Christ through His death and we are raised to new life. Well, that's kind of what Jesus is talking about in this whole section, isn't it? It's to affect everything. His death and His resurrection. Even the disciples make the connection in verse 22. They remembered that He had said this and they believed the Scripture and the Word which Jesus had spoken. That's what it's about. That's what he was talking about. And now it's happened. And now we have hope. Lovingly laying down his life for us. Even while we violently fought against him. He laid in our tomb for three days. And he faced hell itself in our place. Let me ask you a question. Do you really believe that you can look at a man who had no condemnation, no sin of his own, was absolutely perfect in every way, that he went to a cross 
the cross, your cross, not figuratively, literally, on a day in history. And he died naked before his father, wounded, flayed, opened up, blood spilling, death all over him for you. And then was laid in your tomb for three days and three nights and faced hell itself and yet overcame it. You, you, you can look at that and leave here this morning and go, see you next Sunday. I don't have time to think about that Monday through Saturday. We'll think about it again next. No, it is life changing, isn't it? How can it be anything else? Jesus says, this worship around here needs a change. Because you guys have totally missed the point. And the point is this, it's me. I am the source of true worship. He that believes, he'll say later on in John, he that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he. And in between now and then, there's a whole lot of life. Life abundant, he says in John 10, that I've come to bring. What a Savior. What worship we owe to Him that we should gladly partake in giving. Not have to be forced. But offer freely, willingly, and constantly. This ought to be our priority. Jesus came to create worshipers, true worshipers, that worship Him in spirit and in truth. Do you know Jesus is your Savior? If you would answer that question by saying, yes, I've trusted Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. Let me ask you a question to follow up. Is your desire for true worship of Him? For true worship of His Father that changes everything? everything about you, every aspect of your life, I pray that it will be. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful and we are thankful this morning for the Lord Jesus Christ whom you sent, Lord Jesus whom you willingly obeyed, the Father, Spirit who you have shown us and convinced us of His veracity and His truthfulness. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for you're living and dying in our place and we're thankful that the power of Your resurrection three days has changed everything about our eternity. And we pray, Father, that it would not only change our eternity and our eternal outlook, but it would change our temporal outlook as well. That our worship would be sincere. That it would be guided by truth. That it would be Christ-focused that it would be free from distraction, that it would be submitted to His authority, and that it would be pleasing to You. Cause us to be worshipers. Like Isaiah. Like John. Like so many others who encountered the living Lord while He was here on this earth. May we encounter You, Lord Jesus, on the pages of Scripture. Holy Spirit, may you write it upon our hearts and our minds and change our will and our desires and our affections to give worship worthy of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.